After John Gruden's latest incident, I can't help but ask myself, should coaches be a distraction to their teams? In college, it seems like this is the worst quarterback class we've had in years. Speaking of good former college quarterbacks, Kyler Murray is balling out in the desert. He has the Arizona Cardinals playing like the best team in the National Football League. I'll break all of that down and more next on Stern Spotlight. This past weekend has to have been one of the best sports weekends in recent memory. Unbelievable Saturday of college football. Even crazier Sunday of NFL action. And if that wasn't enough for you, the Major League Baseball playoffs put the cherry on top of the ice cream cake. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Stern Spotlight. Be sure to like, subscribe on Spotify. Leave me a comment and I'll answer your question on the show. As many of you know, I work as an associate producer at WFAN and CBS Sports Radio. was kind of tied up last week with work-related stuff. So fortunately, I didn't get to uh, record an episode, but I'm back and better than ever, and I'm fired up to talk about sports. Before we even get into anything that happened in college football or any of the games that took place on Sunday, we have to start with the biggest storyline coming out of Las Vegas where John Gruden resigned, mutually parted ways with the ownership group. It doesn't matter because he's out with the Raiders because of his actions. Last week, it came to light that he sent an email in 2011 to Demarius Smith, then the head of the NFL Players Association, using a racially derogatory slur. The team decided to keep him. And then last night, Monday night, we're recording this on a Tuesday, that New York Times dropped an article detailing a number of different emails that Gruden has sent over the past decade with different racist, misogynistic, insensitive remarks. I'm not going to dive into that because that's not what I want to do here. I want to take this conversation in a different direction because early on in this NFL season, we're about a quarter of the way, we're a little more than a quarter of the way through now, but still early in my mind. The theme has been NFL coaches being a distraction to their teams. You saw it in Jacksonville, where Urban Meyer, after the team lost to Cincinnati, decided to stay in Ohio and went out, and then there was a viral video of a girl twer twerking on his lap like he was back at a frat party in Columbus. Then, with Gruden, less than two weeks later, this report comes out. All of this, to me, begs the question... Should coaches be distractions to their team? We've seen all of the pundits on TV and radio and across different mediums talk about how these guys are a distraction and how they've thrown their team seasons off the rail. I politely disagree with that take on the situation. For starters, coaches are not the ones who play the actual game. Are they in charge of commanding the locker room? Yes. Are they in charge of scheming for the opposition? Yes. Are they the ones that actually go out there and execute and put their blood, sweat, and tears into the final result? Absolutely not. That's why coaches and their role is so overrated in today's day and age. It's like the coach is either the goat or the hero in every situation. They ride or die and die with their team's success. It's not all them. And we've started to see that across the league. To me... Team leaders in the locker room 
play a much larger role in a team's success than the head coach or any other coach for that matter. They're the ones who need to be holding players accountable. They're the ones who need to be motivating everyone when the team is struggling. Even when all is going well, they should be the ones keeping everyone level-headed and motivated for the following game. I don't know why it's all up to the head coach now all of a sudden. And sure, as a player, you have very little say over who's going to coach you and things of that nature. And the coaches do have control on some level, right? I mean, they're the leaders in charge. But at the same time, if I'm on the Raiders, if I'm on the Jaguars, and I'm there, when these types of distractions come about, I'm getting in the middle of the locker room as a leader, and I'm telling my teammates, this isn't about them. Who cares about the coaches? This is about us. Our bodies, our careers, our success as a team is on the line here. Let's not let external factors deter us from what we're focusing on. To me, the second any coach is providing a distraction and transferring the focus to them as opposed to making it about the team and their collective success, they should be out. I don't need that distraction. I don't need some guy yelling at my players when he's the problem. I don't need that. This dilemma of providing unnecessary distraction and diversion to their teams brings me back to another bigger issue at hand. Why are these guys paid so much? Why are they lauded as these massive figures when they're not even playing in the game? I don't understand it. Going through grade school, you always had that one teacher that everyone hated, yet for some odd reason, the principal loved them. Perhaps they yelled at the class every single day. Maybe they loaded you up with homework every night. Or they could have given you those difficult tests that nobody passed, and then that same teacher came back and screamed at the entire class when everyone failed. Yeah, it strikes a nerve for me, and I'm sure it strikes a nerve for you as well. Despite the fact that this teacher was horrible to pretty much every student they came in contact with, the principal loved them. Maybe the principal even came into your class to observe this teacher for five minutes and spent most of the time chatting it up with that teacher. It was put you in a tough position as a kid because you were essentially powerless. John Gruden is the principal's teacher's pet with the Las Vegas Raiders organization, without any doubt. This was a man who was out of football entirely. He did sit in the Monday night football booth, but he wasn't down on the sidelines for a decade. And for some odd reason, the Raiders organization decided to sign him to a 10-year, $100 million, $100 million contract. Not only was Gruden the third highest paid coach in the NFL, but he was making almost a million dollars a year more than Nick Saban, the best coach in college football. Isn't that unbelievable? And in his first tenure with the then Oakland Raiders, Gruden went 60 and 57. Now I know he went to Tampa Bay ultimately and won a Super Bowl with the Buccaneers. With Tony Dungy's inherited team, by the way. But still, after being out of the game for a decade, how did they know he was the answer? It's like Mark Davis went on his phone and called up an old buddy to coach the team. Because that's exactly what happened. In no way, shape, or form was Gruden the most qualified candidate to coach the Raiders. None. 
But the organization was willing to take a chance if it meant putting the sideline antics and the unethical behavior that Gruden put forward in the back seat in order for the team to win. Well, they didn't win. They went 22-31. and 31. They were nine games below 500 during Gruden's second tenure. And eventually, his behavior caught up to him, it caught up to the owners, and it caught up to the team. And now they're going to have to face the consequences for their original decision. Speaking of good and bad decisions, the Oklahoma Sooners made a fantastic decision when they decided to hire Lincoln Riley as their head coach. We all know about back-to-back Heisman-winning quarterbacks, Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray. We'll talk about Kyler a little bit more later in the show, as a matter of fact. But one of the biggest storylines coming out of the college football world this past weekend included the benching of Oklahoma quarterback and top NFL prospect Spencer Rattler. After throwing a pick and struggling in the Red River showdown with Texas, Rattler was benched. You guys all know what happened, right? Caleb Williams comes in, throws for 212 yards, two touchdowns, and leads an epic, and I mean epic, comeback against Texas. Of course, there's a quarterback controversy in Norman right now, but I think the bigger question we need to start asking ourselves now is, what is this year's quarterback draft class going to look like? It really isn't a proven commodity. In the past two years, Trevor Lawrence and Joe Burrow, they were the unanimous number one picks. Even after the top selections, there were nice consolation prizes in Justin Herbert and Tua Tagovailoa. Last year, there were Trey, there was Trey Lance and Justin Fields. So these were very quarterback-driven draft classes, especially at the top end. This year, that really isn't the case. Coming into the season, Malik Willis from Liberty, Keaton Slovis from USC, Sam Howell from UNC, and Rattler from Oklahoma were all kind of considered in the mix for being the top prospect. And although none of these guys were really seen as generational, transcendent types of talents, at this stage in the college football season, you would have thought that at least one of them would have grabbed our attention. Obviously, Rattler's been benched. Howell has really struggled at UNC. He's been sacked nine times and 33 dropbacks. And I don't want to put all the blame on him. He lost two senior receivers last year. His offensive line has struggled. But none of these guys really ring number one pick. And I think for all of the NFL teams that are watching and keeping tabs on the college football season, That should change their strategy drastically. Yeah, I'm talking to you, the Detroit Lions. I'm talking to you, the Houston Texans. And I'm even talking to you, the Jacksonville Jaguars, even though you guys took Trevor Lawrence last year because if you get a new head coach and Urban Meyer is fired, like I expect him to be and like a lot of others do as well, all bets are off. I think that could be a situation similar to what we saw with Cliff Kingsbury in Arizona where he wanted to put his stamp of approval on the organization and ended up drafting Murray. So there's no more tanking in this day and age. For the record, by the way, I wasn't saying any of these teams were playing to lose per se, but 
you need to start thinking about adapting your approach, whether that be evaluating options internally with some of the younger guys you have on the roster, thinking about maybe bringing in a veteran, or perhaps you ditch the quarterback position altogether this year and take the best player available. That type of approach could allow some teams to potentially kick the can down the road a couple of years and start building a good foundation rather than forcing it with a quarterback. Unfortunately, though, then the problem would become what happens if I like any of the quarterback prospects in the 22 class, okay? If you draft a best player available this year in the first round with a high draft choice and you see minimal improvement next year and win, say, five or six games or so, then maybe you're not in a position to draft a quarterback the following year unless you trade up or do something like that. So these are the types of questions and things teams should start to think about when evaluating this year's quarterback class because I don't know if any of these guys are going to be day one starters. I don't know if they're going to be franchise quarterbacks. And until they step foot on an NFL field, I don't know how many scouts can surely say that they will this year. Maybe the same can be said for any year, by the way, because there's no such thing as a surefire prospect in the National Football League. But recently, number one picks, especially quarterbacks, and quarterbacks taken early in the first round have at least been serviceable at the NFL level. That's clearly not the case this time around. So while these NFL owners get on their private jets to fly to Southern California, to fly to Chapel Hill. Their focus should be bracing for impact, not trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. As a former number one pick, Kyler Murray took the league by storm. Skeptics had their doubts too. The Cardinals had just taken Josh Rosen the season before. Been all kinds of organizational turmoil with Steve Wilkes being a one and done at the head coaching position and they brought in Cliff Kingsbury, <laughs> who was fired after a 5-7 and seven season at Texas Tech. We all knew he was an offensive guru, but his team's never played defense. And I think people thought it was going to kind of be the same deal in Arizona. But this year, I am ready to make the declaration that the Arizona Cardinals are the best team in the National Football League. There, I said it. It's kind of odd, too, because... They're not one of these flashy and popular teams. They don't play in the glitz and the glamour of Los Angeles or the big media market of New York. They're just kind of there. Like that person you had the crush on in high school who was always kind of quiet. Not a lot of people knew about them, but they were always good looking and you guys always had a compatible personality. But the real reason the Cardinals have the best record in the league, is Mr. Murray. He has taken a massive, massive leap forward in his development. 13 touchdowns combined to just four interceptions this season. Most impressively, though, he's become a lot more of a gunslinger, much more similar to the Murray we saw in Oklahoma. Threading the needle a little bit, moving the ball down the field, not holding it back, and you always want your quarterback to protect the football. Don't get me wrong. But when they're only throwing two or three interceptions over the course of the season, that's a bad thing because they're not taking enough chances down the field. So I'm okay with him turning the ball over sometimes as long as he doesn't do it recklessly 
and in key situations. The NFC West this season is also a lot weaker than many people anticipated, which I think plays heavily into the Cardinals' favor. Seattle loses Russell Wilson for an extended period of time. Hey, Geno Smith, he ain't driving the train to the finish line in a straight line. You can guarantee that much. He's a solid backup in the NFL. I'm not trying to take a shot at the guy, but he's not a starting caliber quarterback in the league. So you get a break there with Seattle. San Francisco, who knows what's going on with that situation. They've been flip-flopping between Garoppolo and Trey Lance, but they're two and three as well. And then the Rams are really good this year, but I think the Cardinals are a lot better, to be completely honest. They have to have one of the most underrated defenses in the game. Have people forgotten that J.J. Watt exists? Is it the same thing with Chandler Jones? What about the younger, talented defensive players they have? Yeah, I'm talking about Isaiah Simmons and Buda Baker, who's done a great job on the back end of that defense. They also have one of the best one-two punches at the wide receiver position in DeAndre Hopkins and A.J. Green. Still amazing to me that they were able to go out and recruit both Watt and Green to come to Arizona at the twilight of their careers. I have to imagine part of the reason they made that decision is because they knew that Murray was going to take them to the promised land. Arizona has gone 5-0 and so quietly that I feel like everyone's instinctive reaction when they first looked at the standings on Monday morning and saw that the Cardinals were 5-0 and was to look at their schedule and the quality of opponents that they've beaten. They've beaten the Niners, the Rams, and the Tennessee Titans, who have been a dominant force in the AFC over the past couple of years. The remaining road ahead for this team will test them as well. They have games at Cleveland, against the Packers, and then they travel to Arlington to take on America's team in the second to last week of the season. But from what I've seen so far, the Cardinals have the personnel, they have the confidence, They have the mixture of veterans and young players that perfectly complement one another to make it all the way to the Super Bowl. Who knows what happens the rest of the way, but how great would it be to see Kyler Murray push Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers off of the NFC throne? I could talk about the NFL and college football till I'm blue in the face, but I'm going to call an audible and wrap up today's show with the NBA. Now, obviously, Kyrie Irving will not be suiting up, whether it be in practice or games, with the Brooklyn Nets because of his current vaccination status. That's a big problem for Brooklyn when you consider that they have championship-level aspirations this season. And last year, we saw them fall just a little bit short. I thought they would have won the finals if they had Kyrie Irving. And he was the missing piece to the puzzle. Bruce Brown did a great job in his absence. Had 14 points on 7 for 9 shooting from the field in Game 7 against Milwaukee. The other guys picked up the load. But when you don't have a player of Kyrie Irving's caliber on the floor, there's going to be a drop-off. And when you consider how crowded the Eastern Conference is this year, there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. 
You have Milwaukee. Miami is going to be good once again. Boston always likes to hang around a little bit. The Knicks should be much better than, the, than they were last year, especially with that team maturing. Philadelphia is going to be there, obviously depending on what happens with Ben Simmons. But in order to get to where you need to be come playoff time and to advance through the postseason at a level where you can reach the finals and survive these seven-game series, you need Kyrie Irving. I don't care what he does. He needs to find a way to get himself on the floor because the window of opportunity for this Brooklyn Nets team is closing a mile a minute. It's already starting to close in the sense that the fatigue and stamina is starting to take a toll on Kevin Durant. He had to carry the load last year. How much longer can he do this? He's getting older in his career. That bench is not going to pick up the slack, especially not offensively. I really like Patty Mills and James Johnson. I think Paul Millsap was a good addition to that second team as well. But none of those guys are going to be able to make up for the absence of Kyrie Irving. And when you combine that with the fact that there is now team drama, remember I talked about coaching drama earlier in the show? Team drama is different because that's in the locker room. That's with the guys who are actually going out there and playing the game. There's a lot less accountability. There isn't as many guys to call people out in that locker room, and you're missing one of your best players. People are going to feel defeated in some sense. Schematically speaking, there's no player that does a better job of opening up the floor on the offensive side of the ball than Kyrie Irving. Can do everything. He can drive into the lane, can get to the hoop, does a good job of getting to the foul line. Excellent three-point shooter. And when you have a guy like that who keeps the defense on their heels and guessing, it opens up the rest of the floor and allows everyone else to blossom. The key to unlocking everyone else on that team's ceiling is Kyrie Irving. And now they don't have him indefinitely. Without any hesitation, I can say the guy I feel the most sorry for in this situation is James Harden. At 32 years old, he's not getting any younger. He went to Brooklyn to play with Kyrie and get a great chance at winning an NBA Finals. Seems like that's the last thing he needs to accomplish before hanging it up. I hate jumping the gun when it comes to sports because you can never think two and three years ahead. It's always a week-by-week type of thing. But if Irving does not get on the floor, that could lead to Harden ultimately becoming this generation's version of Chris Paul. A great player will go down in history as one of the best point guards to ever play the game. But there's always going to be an asterisk next to CP3's name saying, failed to win an NBA Finals. The same thing could domino and happen to James Harden if Kyrie Irving does not find a way to get back on the court. It's reached the point where this has become a battle for control between the player and the team. That's not good because that increases the odds that they underachieve in perhaps their most critical season in the past decade. The issues persisting 
on Flatbush Avenue could cause fans to get on the train and see the main attraction in town at Madison Square Garden. That'll do it for this edition of Stern Spotlight. As always, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, do whatever you want to do. It was great getting to talk some NFL, college football, and NBA dribbled in at the end. And I'll be back again soon for another episode of Stern Spotlight.